From Me to Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, professor and Nobel Prize winner Dr. John Hay will talk to us about the state of climate change and adaptation strategies. So stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, joining us again this week is our special guest, uh, Professor John Hay, uh, Nobel Prize winner from the IPCC and expert on climate change. Uh, Professor Hay, thank you so much for joining us here again on the program. You're most welcome, Frank. Good to be back. Great. So it's been a couple of years since we last talked. Uh, in the past few years, the IPCC has begun preparations for a new report on the state of the climate and how we should respond to it. Uh, what are the, some of the interesting developments you see in the last couple of years and what are you excited about? Well, I'm not sure I'm excited because um, the, the news is not that good as we develop more understanding of the uh, speed of climate change. Um, secondly, the ineffectiveness of actions to um, slow down the rate of change, what we call mitigation, reducing the emission of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as a result of human activity. And then um, thirdly, um, we see some um, really worrying evidence coming out, uh, particularly in terms of, of the speed of sea level rise. Sea level is already tracking higher than the earlier estimates from the last IPCC report in, in uh, 2010. And so um, this is worrying. And as we see um, changes in the Greenland ice sheet and in, in Antarctica, we're gathering evidence to show that melting in those two areas is much faster than had ever been expected. There seem to be feedback loops which actually accelerate the, the, the speed of melting, uh, partly due to the meltwater um, lubricating the contact between the ice of the glaciers and the, the rock that underlies the glaciers. So mm -hmm. you have this uh, meltwater providing lubricant, and so this means that the the glaciers um, move more rapidly towards the coast and therefore uh, melting is accelerated. So not a, a lot of good news. I guess the, 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 the good news that's come out is actually between the, the last IPCC report and the one that we're all anxiously waiting for, and that is that there was a special report on extremes. The IPCC did a special report on extremes. And this was showing that many of the 
changes that we're observing in our climate, uh, plus the changes that we can expect to impact us in the near future, uh, relate to extreme events. Mm -hmm. And so there is now a really strong convergence between disaster risk reduction, this is trying to reduce the impacts of disasters, and climate change adaptation, which is trying to reduce the adverse consequences of climate change. Uh, up until recently, those two communities of practice, as we might call them, bodies of experts, uh, have been working quite separately. Mm-hmm. And now they're joining forces, which is a really good um, piece of progress. And one of the main messages that comes out of that is that as we reduce the impacts or the consequences of disasters as we work towards that, and we've been quite effective there, number of fatalities from the natural um, disasters is decreasing substantially all over the world. But as we uh, implement those sorts of, of actions, we know that and now understand that that's actually the best preparation for the future in terms of climate change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of your focus is on small islands, and in fact, you, you live uh, on the Cook Islands, which is one of the small islands. Um, you know, why should the rest of the world care about these places? Very, very good question. And, and there are two, two reasons. One is that if you look at the value of an individual, that, value, that individual has the same value. We have the same moral obligations to that individual, no matter where they live. If they live in a, a country of huge population like China or India, or a small population such as the Cook Islands in the South Pacific, where we only have 15,000 people in the whole country. Mm-hmm. Each individual, morally and ethically, has the same value. Mm-hmm. And so we, we should not really be influenced by um, the, whether they live in a big country or a small country. Now, of course, uh, if we can do things to reduce the impacts of climate change in a country like China, mm-hmm. we get many more benefits, human benefits, than if we tr- right. do that in, in the Cook Islands, where there's right. only 15,000 people, as I said. So there is a factor of scale, but morally and ethically, we have to value human lives equally, no matter where those people live. Right. And yet, you know, many of these small islands are already severely threatened, and in fact, some of them have to be abandoned either in the very near future or at least already have been. Those types of developments don't appear on the radar on most people in the developing countries uh, in terms of, you know, as indicators of what could be coming in the future. Is that because of the media or is it because of the attitudes in these developed countries as to, you know, the value of these smaller islands? Well, in fact, there's a number of dimensions to your question because we see the media uh, really focusing and, and, and doing a lot of documentaries on, say, the Maldives, um, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Maldives in the Indian Ocean, Kiribati, Tuvalu in the Pacific Ocean. And the media, I think, disproportionately concentrate on those countries because mm-hmm. There's a message there that that they're disappearing rapidly. Uh, if you look at the tourism uh, publicity, often it says visit these islands before they disappear. 
It's like visit Antarctica or visit Greenland, visit the polar bears before they disappear. This sort of media or publicity hype. That's actually counterproductive. Mm. It doesn't really show what the scientific evidence is showing. These islands uh, are going to survive into the future much longer than the media often uh, talks about. But on the other side of the coin, there is a very important aspect to your question, Frank, and that is that um, these islands are very much microcosms you could almost talk about them as a human experiment, which mm-hmm. I don't really like the term, but um, another way of talking about them is bellwethers for the, for the people that are sailors, or if you know a little bit about um, coal mining in the old days, they used to take canaries down mm-hmm. to look for methane and the other explosive gases, and if the, if the canary showed... Um, poor health, um, you got out there very quickly because there was an evidence that coal gas was leaking in, into the passageways and so there was a danger of explosion. So in many cases, these, these small island countries and small islands themselves are an indicator of what larger islands and, and therefore you know, extremely large islands <laughs> like continents are, are in for in, in the future. Right. Most people think of these islands as just um, nothing but a, a sort of rock and sand um, a f- less than a few metres above sea level. But in fact, the island I live on has, has volcanic... Um, mountains. It's a small island. It's only 32 kilometres around. But within that, there's there's very high uh, peaks, um, almost inaccessible. And so we we look at those and say, well, those peaks are going to stay above sea level for thousands and thousands of years. But um, the reality is that those peaks are, are uninhabitable. You can't retreat. And, mm-hmm. and maintain a, an island of 10,000 people at, mm-hmm. at those high levels on steep slopes. So they are very much symbolic of, of a larger continent, mm-hmm. high land, coastal areas, most people living around the coast and mm-hmm. therefore very vulnerable. Whether you're talking about China or you're talking about the, uh, the island I live in, the mm-hmm. South Pacific. When you look at these international climate negotiations, you know, one of the factors that negotiators claim is hindering their uh, progress is the uncertainty in these climate predictions and what's happening. Yet, you know, the reality is that these small islands are already being threatened. So why doesn't that translate to, you know, concrete certainty? There's another aspect to your question, and and that is that um, we don't actually have to look into the future to know there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to look into the future to know that we should be doing something really serious. Mm -hmm. Because the present day situation is untenable, no matter whether you the United States or a a small island in in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. The, the, The reason is that, in my view, and I think I would be widely supported in this view, is that uncertainty is being used as an excuse. And I'll say that again, uncertainty is being used as an excuse. We know that there are many countries, there are many people who don't want to believe that climate change is something that they need to respond to. So they look for any excuse. And uncertainty, in other words, 
what is likely to happen is used as, in the future is used as that excuse. This is why I highlight that important development of the links between disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. Right. Disaster risk reduction looks to the present or the very immediate future. We're talking about the next few years. Right. Uncertainty doesn't come into it then. We know that there's going to be disasters and we need to deal with them. So as we do more effort in that area, we're actually preparing ourselves for, for climate change. Practically, there's a lot of work being done, but also we have to acknowledge that more work should be done but is not being done because people are using excuses like uncertainty about the future to argue that nothing should be done until there is more certainty. But look at this situation of, about day-to-day -day weather. Mm -hmm. There is uncertainty in the weather that we're going to experience mm -hmm. in the next six hours. Right. Does it stop us making decisions? No. <laughs> and it's this analogous situation. Mm -hmm. The timescales are different. But the, in the many senses, the consequences are the same. Mm -hmm. Coming into work this morning, I decided not to bring an umbrella, mm -hmm. despite the fact that there's a 40% chance of rainfall mm -hmm. today. I made a decision, despite huge uncertainty in mm -hmm. what the weather is going to be when I leave the office and, and go back to my hotel, and yet I made a decision. Mm -hmm. And we're doing this all the time. We're always making decisions in the face of uncertainty. But it seems that climate change is treated differently. And this is because people do not want to take climate change seriously. Great, great. So it's time for a quick break right now. Uh, for those of you who just joined, we've been talking with Professor John Hay from the IPCC. We've been talking about climate change in small island countries and progress for international action. We'll be back in a few moments, so stay right there. So you mentioned that there's more um, collaboration, alignment between uh, disaster risk reduction and climate change. There's also uh, discussions about aligning you know, climate change with uh, overseas development. Do you think those efforts are also effective? They, they are. And in fact, this is the only way to, to go. And we're already making very good progress. The day we stop talking about climate change in isolation, and, and currently we spend a lot of time talking about climate change and how to respond to it, in an isolated way. We um, separated off from all of the other initiatives that are happening internationally, nationally, locally. That when we stop doing that and we talk about things like climate resilient development uh, or climate compatible development. Now these are expressions which are gaining much more popularity. Mm -hmm. So you don't talk about climate change climate change adaptation, mm -hmm. you talk about climate resilient development, climate compatible development. Mm -hmm. And this, in my view, is a, an improvement that 
is even more significant than that alignment of disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. In your lecture a couple of days ago, you mentioned that besides the technical factors, uh, social factors, um, community ties and uh, social capital are also essential to develop the, the necessary capacity to respond to these changes. Um, yet when you look at uh, the developed world and you know, urbanization as one of the main drivers, you see that family ties and social ties become weaker in these modern environments. What, what are some of your thoughts on how to maintain or to upkeep these, uh, the social capacity? Well, some of the modern technologies are, are helping us. Look at when there is a disaster, um, be it an unfortunate event like a terrorist event or a natural event like an earthquake. Mm -hmm. We see social media um, really playing an important role of linking people. Um, in the first instance, linking people that have been separated family members or whomever it might be who've been separated as a result, immediate result of that event. Mm -hmm. Up and then longer term, we, we see social media being mobilised for um, providing assistance to, to, to the needy. Mm -hmm. So matching people who can respond and have the time and capacity to respond and assist with those that are in need of, of, of that assistance. So I think... Modern technology, modern communication technology is really helping to offset that breakdown in traditional relationship right. and mutual assistance that we have seen um, happening all over the world. This is not a developing country issue, mm -hmm. this is uh, a, a global issue. And I'm sort of optimistic, but we need to use those modern technologies widely and productively. Sometimes I think they get in the road um, right. and uh, can be misused. Right. Mean, there's no quality control, no quality assurance mm -hmm. in the messages that go out over these social networking systems. And we need to be more careful. We, we need to use them with discretion or else they... They could be abused, just like we have hackers getting into computer systems. Uh, oh, right. I think that I'm not knowledgeable on this. I'm sure you are more knowledgeable, but it's um, open to abuse. Yes. It's probably already happening, but I'm not aware of it. Mm -hmm. But it's something that we need to be very mindful of. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, as you, as we've been discussing, I'm also involved in some of these climate adaptation studies, and what one of my areas of focus is in the Mekong Delta, the Vietnam Milken Delta. And, you know, one of the observations we made when we went there was that, in general, it, it seems the people there have more balanced lives in the sense that they take time, you know, not only to work, but also spend time with their family and their, and their neighbors. And there's a strong sense of community when you visit some of these villages in the, in the, the rural areas. Um, what what are we to say, you know, from a developed point of view, that we should be trying to help them when it seems like they seem to live a very content lifestyle? Well, you've pushed a button with me there, Frank, because <laughs> I I often have the experience of people um, coming into um, Pacific Island countries uh, from from Western countries and look at people uh, that are living in traditional housing. And assuming 
um, that they are very poor off and, and uh, feeling sorry for them and mm -hmm. saying, oh, look at these poor people. Mm -hmm. And my response to them is those people don't need therapy. They don't have people providing um, counseling to them. They're not... They don't have antidepressant drugs and things like that. Mm -hmm. they, you're right. They are leading a very balanced and comfortable lifestyle. If you judge their lifestyle in Western terms, it's mm -hmm. not. It, they are poor people, yeah. financially poor people. But culturally, mm -hmm. spiritually, and so on, they're very rich people. They're richer than most people living in Manhattan and in other locations, to, to name um, one. So we have to be careful... But the problem is their capacity, their ability to respond, particularly to external pressures mm -hmm. and, and, and events that are imposed on them from the outside. Um, and I use natural events as, as well as, say, um, uh, more sort of human-focused events like an epidemic um, mm -hmm. disease. Um, their capacity to deal and cope with those sorts of events is much less than the people living in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Now, when we looked at um, Hurricane Sandy and infecting New York, we see that those sorts, and Katrina and so on, can bring large parts of the US to, to its knees. Mm -hmm. um, but the ability to bounce back, and I'm very conscious when I compare... Um, the ability of, of Japan to bounce back after its major earthquake and tsunami. Mm -hmm. Compare that to even uh, my home city or former city where I was born, Christchurch, New Zealand, and its ability to bounce back is much less. Mm -hmm. The recovery there has been much less than the recovery in this area we're in, in Japan. Mm -hmm. But if it had been, and we know Haiti and places like that, have even less ability to bounce back from these disastrous events, whether they be natural or human caused. Mm -hmm. And so that's where developed countries and that's where development assistance is important. Not in terms, and I stress, and this goes back to your earlier point, not in terms of recovery from a disastrous event, but mm. in terms of preparedness mm. for such events. So disaster risk reduction rather than disaster uh, recovery. And that's where development assistance is, is, is being increasingly focused, I'm pleased to say, mm. and where it needs to have greater focus. We will always have to have assistance to countries like uh, Vietnam in the event of a disaster, that no matter how much development assistance goes in there for disaster preparedness, it's not going to allow them to come off unscathed mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. a major natural event. So it's a matter of getting the balance better than it has been in the past. Okay. Well, Professor Fay, uh, it's been a very insightful discussion today. Uh, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your ongoing work? Well, it's, I have to say that the thing that comes immediately to mind is that I have unfortunately not been able to come to Japan for the last three years. And it's, it's wonderful to have returned to Japan after that time to... Um, reassure ourselves that people like yourself um, have survived, and, and I don't mean that in a fatal 
or non-fatal sense, but that you that you have been able to recover from the disastrous events of three years ago, um, and that's that's really reassuring. And I would like to be able to go into developing countries after a similar disaster event, go back to a country. Uh, three years after a big event, and find that they have been able to recover as rapidly as Japan has been. I'm not saying that Japan has totally recovered. I, there are still many things to do, but it's just amazing the, the, the amount of recovery that's been possible. It would be really good if we could think that it's not only the Japans of the world that can recover so quickly, but it's the Haiti of the world and, and Bangladesh's of the world and so on that can also recover in, in similar speed. Uh, Professor Hay, it's been a very inspiring discussion. Thank you so much. You're most welcome, Frank. And we were just talking to Professor John Hay of the Nobel Prize winning IPCC. He joined us to talk about climate change in small island countries and the respective roles of developed and developing countries in tackling this issue. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week again for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook, Twitter, and you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Mm -hmm.